Uh, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Romans 14. We're back uh, in Romans uh, this week. We'll be here for... Uh, I, the only interruption we'll have to finishing Romans will be 2028, which is on Father's Day. Uh, we'll take a special break for that. Otherwise, we're going to be done with Romans by the end of June. So we are closing in. So here's the question of the morning. If you wanted to destroy a church, how would you go about it? Probably not the question you were expecting to hear when you came in, uh, when we're going to get into studying God's Word. But let's just hypothesize for a minute. If your objective was to destroy a church, how would you go about doing that? Now, it's not really all that odd of a question. It might feel odd to us because we live in you know, Western civilization, 21st century, where uh, even if you disagree with people, you know, there isn't a whole lot of violent disagreement. Uh, but the facts are that for the last 2,000 years, lots of people have spent time and energy and effort trying to destroy the church. In fact, the guy who wrote the book of Romans, you may not know this, uh, his name was the Apostle Paul, but he wasn't always the Apostle Paul. Uh, before he became a disciple of Jesus, his name was Saul, and his every waking moment of every day was spent trying to destroy the church of Jesus. He would take people and he would confiscate their property. Uh, he would take people and he'd haul them off to prison and he would, he would uh, lobby false accusations against them and he'd have them thrown in jail. Saul, who became Paul, lived to destroy the church. And he did so through persecution, which typically is the way people think about that. But oddly enough, every time persecution arises in the church, whether it was in Saul's, then Paul's day, or all the way down to this very moment in the 21st century, whenever persecution arises, the church gets stronger, not weaker. The church, in a sense, I guess you could say to use a kind of a modern colloquialism, circles the wagons and begins to pray more and begins to, to live out their faith a little bit more, and the church actually grows through persecution. I was having a conversation with Brian Chappell several years ago. He was a president of Covenant Seminary, and I believe the country he was mentioning was Yugoslavia, but it was one of the former Soviet satellites. And a few years before the Iron Curtain came down, but as people were beginning to express their faith a little more openly, he was talking about, he told me about a time where the secret police showed up at a house church and pulled the pastor out in front of the entire house church of about 50 people, put him against the wall, and shot him to death. And from that experience, Brian went on to tell me that tens of thousands of people put their faith in Christ. A revival, it might be the word we would use, broke out all over that country. You think of where the church is growing the most today, and it's in places like China, where the gospel is outlawed, and yet people of faith, people who are disciples of Jesus, are risking everything to see the kingdom of God come to bear in their community. So it isn't persecution. So if you're thinking, you know, well, some way we'll torch it, that isn't going to work. Actually, what Paul is going to tell us this morning, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that the greatest danger is not from without, but is from within. The greatest danger to the church imploding, to the church being destroyed, is sitting and standing in this very room. It's you and me, well-meaning disciples of Jesus who get our priorities out of line, who make minor things major things, who lose sight of the most important aspects of our faith, the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, and replace that with, with an arrogance, with a pride, with a self-righteousness that destroys human relationships on every level. The things we're going to see that Paul talks about this morning could be applied to your business. If you don't know how to destroy your business, you'll have the ingredients right here. 
It applies to your family, to your marriage. You want to know how to destroy a marriage? The ingredients will be found right here. But the flip side of that coin is that Paul also shares with us what we can do to live out our faith in a way that, that safeguards the church against this divisive spirit that can be found within. So with that in mind, Romans chapter 14, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Hear the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who, despi- who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gave thanks to God. And the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, and he quotes out of Isaiah here, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather in this room for uh, what we call a church service or a worship service, Lord, we pray for your perfect word, your truth, to speak into every one of our lives. Father, every man, woman, and, and probably child in this room at some point has been the victim of, of someone passing judgment on them or someone despising them, or someone quarreling with them. Father, probably just about every man, woman, and and probably even child in this room has been a culprit in that area. We have despised others. We have quarreled with others. We have passed judgment when we ought not. Father, I thank you for uh, the life of the Apostle Paul and, and for how you spoke your truth into his heart. And here is an as an elder statesman of the church, Advancing in years, he's, he's able to, to see through your eyes what, what will tear down a church and what will build up a church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see that. Not just for our congregation as a whole, Lord, but these principles strengthen our relationships with one another. They, they strengthen our marriage or, or they build them down. They, they strengthen our, our business dealings with one another or they tear them down. So, Father, uh, you are a God of your church in every sense of the word. So this applies not only to Green Tree, but it applies to each of us individually. So we we pray that you would come and speak to us. Father, I am not uh, adequate uh, to describe this clearly enough. Lord, we don't come here to hear the words of man. We don't come here to hear man's philosophy and theories. We come to hear your truth. So Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I'm going to divide this into two sections. The first section is a surefire way to destroy a church. And then the section section is a surefire way uh, to, to plan protection for uh, the church community. So if, if you are in the business of church destruction, you've come to the right place this morning. I'm going to give you three things uh, that, that you can jot down in your notes and, uh, and can, to consider applying them to your life. The first one would be this. If you want to destroy a church, make sure that you're more concerned about being right than valuing love and mercy. Make sure that you're more concerned about being right, winning an argument, so to speak, than valuing love and mercy. If you would look at the, at the first verse of this section where Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Now, we'll, we'll come back to the welcoming part in just a minute. But when Paul says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, he's talking about uh, a newborn. He's talking about one who's vulnerable. He's talking about, about the little ones, the ones who have, who have, who have just come to faith in Christ. Maybe they've been a believer a day, a week, a month, or a year, but, but they don't uh, know the Word of God yet in its, in its fullness there. They're just beginning to get their feet on the ground. And so if you want to really do damage to somebody right from the very beginning, make sure that you present them a quarreling spirit. Make sure that, that you, you keep the conversation at enough of a surface level that you're not talking about the things that are most important to our faith, which we'll come back to in a few minutes, but you're talking about matters of opinion, styles of worship, well, how long the preacher should preach or not preach, what should you wear to church, what, you know, all of those kind of things that are part of church but are not foundationally important. In other words, you, you want to take your own self-righteousness and apply it to this human relationship, ignoring the grace in which you stand. Because you see, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you've put your faith in him for salvation, what you've admitted to yourself and, and your confession to the world is, I'm not good enough in God's economy. I have offended God. I have fallen short. I have actually committed treason against God's design for this world, which is to spread his love and his joy and his mercy and his justice all over the planet. And I've worked against that. And I need a savior. And by definition, you've said that Jesus is my savior. And what Jesus did on the cross was he brought the justice of God and the mercy of God together in perfect unity. God is perfectly just. He's not going to ignore your sin and he's not going to ignore mine. The rebellion that's in my heart, the anger that's in my heart, the lust that's in my heart, the way that these things work themselves out in my life are an offense to God. He's not going to turn a blind eye to all the stuff Tom Ricks has done that he shouldn't have done, said, thought, acted on. He's not going to turn a blind eye to your sin. It will be judged. But God is also equally mercy. He desires that no one is lost. And so he sent his son who lived a perfect life who was the one person that didn't justly deserve God's wrath, and he, and he poured out the punishment that you and I deserve on him so that Jesus could then turn to be merciful to us and welcome him into his family for all of eternity. But you have to ignore all of that, and you have to, you have to stand in your own rightness and prove your point when you get in an argument. I had a man one time in a church where I formerly served, and every Sunday after the sermon, he would come up to me. Uh, at, I was kind of in a very traditional church, and I stood at the back door, and he would tell me how many sentences I ended in prepositions during the sermon. Now, if you want to know how to destroy a pastor, that's a good start. It won't get you all the way done. My skin's a little thicker than that, but it's a good start. Uh, I don't mind 
an honest critique. I don't mind somebody saying, you know, I think you maybe could have said this and it would have been a little more impactful. I'm very happy to hear uh, constructive criticism from people I know that love me and care about me and love Green Tree and care about Green Tree. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm welcome that, but this was not the case. He wanted to show me how much smarter he was than me. He wanted to be right. And there was no love or no mercy in that conversation. If you want to destroy a church, that's a good start. The second is this. Make sure that there's a lot of emotion. Get angry in your disagreements. Look at verse 3. Paul says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for this. Um, In Paul's day, well, let me say it this way. Uh, We have Costco, we have Sam's, we have have discount places where you can go get bargains, right? So in Paul's day, you could go to the meat market and you could buy the, the regular meat at the regular price. But at this end of the counter... Uh, there was a local deity, there was some idol that was being worshipped, and, and it eventually meant some kind of food sacrifice to that idol. It had already been cooked, and it's already ready, but it had been part of a, a sacrifice in a false religion. And you could get that for like half the price that you could get, that you could get this meat. So a lot of Christians went, well, the idol isn't anything. It, the idol doesn't, it's not a real god, it doesn't mean anything. Why not, why not go get less, you know, spend less on the meat? We can give more to the church. Other people said, wait a minute, that, that's part of a false religion. How, how could you do that? that you know, you're, in some way, you're endorsing the worship of that idol. And neither one of them were perfectly right or perfectly wrong in their argument. But what Paul observed in the life of the church was there's a lot of emotion attached to this. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of angst. And we would say you feel your blood beginning to boil a bit. And so make sure when you're talking about non-essential issues, when you're talking about opinions, make sure you get really, really angry with the other person. Raise your voice, flail your arms, however you demonstrate anger, however it looks when, you, when nobody else is looking and it really comes out, do that. That's very helpful in destroying a church. James says in chapter 4, what causes arguments and quarrels among you? Is it not the passions that wage war within your soul? You want, but you don't get, so you covet, and you destroy one another. And Paul says, if you you want to destroy a church, make sure you bring a a lot of negative anger into your disagreements over things that are not of great consequence. One other surefire way to destroy a church, we've got three in this section, and that is a misapplication of moral judgment. Now, when I say moral judgment, we have to be careful not to to confuse our terms here. There is a place for judgment within the church. I hear a lot these days, you know, who are you to judge me? That's a foolish, foolish statement that carries no biblical authority. Scripture is very clear that we are called to make judgments. We are called to discernment. We are called to, to observing the life and the health of our church and making the appropriate adjustments, even if it means calling out sin in our own lives. Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about a moral judgment, which means I'm not looking out for your interest. I'm not saying, hey, you know what? I see something in your life, and humbly and graciously, I'd love to share with you because I think you can grow in your faith if you notice this. This is a, I'm better than you. You know, I've, I've lived longer. I got all the answers. I'm better than you. And so let me tell you what you're doing down there so that maybe someday you can get up here, but you're probably not ever going to get up here. It, there, there's a self-righteous arrogance to it. And so Paul says that it's a, it's a moralistic thing. So let not the one who abstains pass judgment, this kind of moral judgment, on the one who eats. And who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? 
Paul says the relationships within the body of Christ were not given to us to, for us to be self-righteous and, and to inflict our opinions on other out of arrogance and out of pride. Uh, our oldest son, Nate, was on a business trip in Pittsburgh last week, and he said, Dad, we were out to, we were out to dinner after work, and there were three, about, about three or four or five of us sitting around the table, and he was there with his boss. He said, a couple of guys I'd never met before from another state, and, and we're just talking. You know, we're just kind of hanging out and chatting, and all of a sudden, the conversation turned to politics, <laughs> which is, is a bad, you know, you kind of know where this, where this story's going. And he said, you know, you have, you have, you have a couple guys over here saying, you know, which political party is destroying the country and why they're doing it and, and why they need to, you know, we got to deal with them. And then other guys are like, no, it's, you know, they're, you know, just going back and forth against each other. Nate's like, I haven't known these guys for 15 minutes and this guy's wagging his finger in my face. I haven't even voiced any opinion whatsoever. And they looked at me and goes, I think I know how the Civil War got started. <laughs> you know, sad though it, though it be, that's true. You know, we, we bring this moral judgment against one. Well, if you're here this morning and you don't want to destroy the church, <laughs> outside chance here that the, the, the greater part of the population in this room would, would like to know a little bit more about preserving and protecting the church community, what do we do with this? Well, the first thing is we have to ask the hard questions. Am I reflected? Is my tone of voice, is my attitude of my heart reflected in, in these, these three surefire ways to destroy the church? And if I see even a part of that in my life, what do I do? How do I actively repent, not just saying, Lord, I, I'm sorry, and Lord, forgive me, but how do, I, how do I go in a different direction in my life? How do I apply the gospel to really wanting to build a care and a love and a protection for the body of Christ? Well, Paul flips the coin, and he answers that question as well. Let me give you several observations here. The first one is this. Paul says, make sure that you welcome as God welcomes. And I'm going back to the first one now. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So Paul's talking to people who are mature disciples. So if you've been a disciple of Jesus for, you know, three, four, five, 10, 20, 30 years, Paul is addressing you in this passage. For those of you who have walked with the Lord for a while, for those of you who have had his grace overflowing in your life on a longer basis, and this newborn comes to you, this little one comes into your congregation, you welcome them like God welcomed you. So now you got to think back. And some of you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you got to think way back. How did God welcome you? How did God welcome me when I became a believer? Did he say, okay, Tom, I've got a checklist here, and I've got 17,324 things that you have to do, and as soon as you get all of those done, then I will let you into my kingdom? No. God said, Tom, you've got more than 17,000 things wrong, but you know what? Jesus is your perfection. And by grace, not you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, it's free to you, but it's a great cost to me. My son paid the price for you, and you're welcomed into my kingdom, not because of who you are or what you've done. In spite of all that, my grace is sufficient for you. And friends, those of us who have been believers for a while, we tend to forget that. We tend to think the cross was for when I became a Christian, and now I'm on to more important things. There's nothing more important and the life and the health of a church, but every mature disciple of Jesus going back to the cross every day of their lives and remembering how God welcomed you and then taking that and applying that to welcoming others. Uh, we have two granddaughters. The, most, the newest one is uh, about a month old. And I have to think back into my mind about 
how old kids have to be before you can throw them up in the air and catch them, but it's not four weeks old. <laughs> I know that. I didn't try it. I didn't like, oh, yeah, well, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't tossed uh, Avery up in the air yet. But Lael, who's four, was here this morning. She came running down the aisle. I grabbed her and threw her up, and we were laughing and giggling and carrying on. And last night we were eating Captain Crunch together, and we were toasting each other with our spoons of Captain Crunch and making a mess on the countertop. And Grandma got a little nervous about that, but we got it all cleaned up. But, but there's an age appropriateness to care, right? I can throw a four-year-old up a little bit because chances are I'm going to catch her, right? You don't throw an infant in the air. You treat an infant with gentleness and with care. and with, uh, You hold them tight and you make sure that, that they're, they're, they're snuggled and they're, and they're cared for because they're helpless without you, right? And Paul says, to those of you that have been believers for a while, don't you, don't you start quarreling with the babies. Don't you start mistreating them. You handle them with tenderness. You handle them with gentleness. They're going to say some foolish things. They're going to get some stuff wrong. They're going to emphasize some things that, that, that they won't in a few years. They maybe see everything as black and white. And, and trust me, when they get older, they won't. They'll mature. They'll see the, 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 the life of faith differently. But for right now, don't worry about all that. Just make sure they know that I love them. And the way they know it is because you love them. That's Paul's first call to the church. If we want to protect our church, let's make sure we're caring for the newborn. And I'm going to go down a side road for just a second and say, are we producing newborns? Are we looking at the people in our community and our world who don't know Christ? And are we, as we said last week, are we looking outward or are we looking inward? Are we interested in building a castle or are we interested in building a kingdom? If we don't have any newborns, I'm not talking about the babies. We have, we have lots of those and, and the more the merrier. I'm talking about those people that are coming to know Christ for the first time because we are purposely seeking to share the gospel with them. Where are the newborns in our congregation? The second way to protect the church, Paul says, is to critique without emotion. Let the one who eats, excuse me, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. See the emotion? That's a, that's a strong word. One person esteems one day is better than the other. Another esteems all day alike. That, the second one is, is talking about Sundays. What can you do on Sunday? And, and even back in Paul's days, was it the traditional Jewish Sabbath or was it, was it Sunday, the Lord's Day, because Christ rose on that day? So there's a lot of kind of back and forth banter about that particular topic. Paul says there's nothing wrong with having the conversation. There's nothing wrong with having a good, lively debate on these things. It's probably healthy and, and helpful for people to talk. That's how you learn. That's how you grow. But not with the negative emotion. What we want to do is we want to be able to critique, and we want to be able to understand, but we don't want misplaced passion nor do we want misplaced arrogance or misplaced pride. We want to have these critiques and these conversations with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of humility. I have a friend who's a priest, and, and uh, he, he pulled this card out of his wallet several years ago. And he's not, I'm not even sure where he lives now. He's not in St. Louis anymore. But he had a card, and he said, I look at this business card every day. It's my business card. And on the back, it says, bless those who curse you. They're probably right. <laughs> what a great card to carry around in your wallet. There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of, uh, of understanding that it's God's grace that saves you. So if we get into it, you know, we want to talk about, you know, this topic or that topic, and, and we want to have a good, lively conversation, that's great, but we don't have to bring the angst to it, so to speak. We don't have to bring a, a negativity to it, but rather it is our debate, is it, is it sharpening each other? Is it encouraging each other? Is it strengthening each other? Which means we have to learn the distinctions between the essentials and the non-essentials. Um, uh, there you go. Yeah, thank you very much, J.D., for keeping up with me. I'm sorry, I skipped the page. Um, 
there are essentials of our faith. There are certain things that, that define Christianity. And we actually have a book in our denomination, the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is our denomination. And, and we have a book called the Book of Order. And in that, it has a list of the essentials and it has like a big long paragraph next to each one. And I thought of bringing that and reading it to you, but then I decided I, I would spare you that. But these are our essentials, and I'm going to fly through them. If you actually want to read it, you can go to the EPC website, or you can call me, and I'll be happy to send you a copy. But very quickly, we believe the Bible is the authoritative truth of God. The Bible doesn't contain truth. It is truth. God inspired humans to write it, but he spoke his truth into their lives, and they put it on paper, and it is from the Lord. If God walked into this room right now and had a conversation with us, he wouldn't say anything different than what's on the pages of Scripture. It is his authoritative truth for our lives, and therefore we obey Scripture. We don't take it into consideration when we're making decisions. Secondly, we believe in God as the Trinity, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but one, or excuse me, three, three personalities, one person, one God. We believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary through divine conception by the Holy Spirit, that he lived the perfect life, and he went to the cross to die in our place, as we talked about a moment ago, was raised physically from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of God. We believe the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was given to us in the life of every believer. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you, the first thing that happened before you actually had that thought, I'm going to pray to put my faith in Christ, is that the Holy Spirit came into your life, and he indwelled you. And he empowers believers to trust God in faith, through Christ, he also empowers us to love and to serve one another. We believe salvation is found only through Jesus. There aren't multiple pathways to God. God has provided his son. What more could he possibly provide for our salvation? There are not many names whereby we're saved. There is one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. We believe that the church is the visible representation of God's people on earth. We are flawed, but we are his representation. We believe Jesus is going to come in bodily, physical form. He's going to judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, and establish his eternal kingdom. And we believe that scripture calls us to go and to make disciples. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, your marching orders and my marching orders are to go and reproduce, to go and share the gospel with others to see them come into the kingdom of God. Now, I went through that really fast, and there's a lot behind that, but let me tell you something. There's a whole lot more that isn't on the screen. There's a whole lot more non-essentials. You baptize babies, you baptize adults. We baptize infants at Green Tree. I can make a great argument for that. A lot of people at Green Tree smile when we do that, but they don't necessarily agree with that. That's fine. That's a non-essential. We don't have to punch each other in the nose over that. Do you worship in a school building or do you worship in a more permanent structure? Do you send your child to a private school? Do you send your child to a public school? Do you homeschool? We have, we have all of those at Green Tree Community Church. Those are things that are opinions. Those are, and they're valid opinions, but they're opinions nonetheless. And Paul says, if we're going to protect the church, we must be able to discern between the essentials and the non-essentials. Paul would say in his day, you want to eat meat? Go right ahead, but if it hurts a weaker brother, don't do it. Care for the weaker brother more than you care about saving a few bucks at the meat market. If you want to strictly hold to the Sabbath and, not, and, and, and just be quiet and still and meditative, that's great. If you guys are going to go out in the backyard and play wiffle ball and run around and have a great time and go get slushies when you're all done, great. Those are opinions. And those are things that we do not come to violence with one another, even emotionally, over we need to learn the distinctions between the essentials and the non-essentials so that we can come to this conviction. The conviction is that the non-essential is mine, not yours. 
that it's mine. It's what I hold. It's not necessarily what you hold. And you're not wrong if yours is different than mine. One person esteems one day better than the other. The other esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So if I pray about it and I seek the Lord, I say, you know what? I'm going to be a little quieter on Sundays. I'm not going to do as much as maybe my brother in Christ down the street or my sister in Christ over here. That's great. That's fine. But we do not judge the other. We do not condemn them as wrong because we have this disagreement. I look at this for me to understand that I may be fully convinced. And I, let, me, let me just tell you this. I have been so fully convinced in my life on so many things that I am no longer fully convinced of by any stretch of the imagination. Your convictions will change. If you're a young disciple in Jesus, your convictions will change over the years. Some of my convictions have gotten infinitely stronger, and some of them I'm, I'm ashamed that I ever held them in the first place and ever even argued with anybody about it. But they're for me to build my relationship with Christ, just as you have yours to build your relationship in Christ, and we are not to judge one another, which means we have to remember the org chart. That's my fifth of, I have six, fifth observations. We've got to remember who's in, who's in charge. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, to whom do we belong? We are the Lord's. We belong to God. He sets the guidelines. He sets the directives. And we follow his leading. Uh, both, I had this experience with both my boys when they were in high school, and, and you probably had this if you're a guy growing up in your home, or if you've had sons, you may have had this experience. There comes a time when, when a young teenager kind of wants to kind of puff his chest up a little bit, and he kind of wants to see, you know, if dad really means what he says. Uh, and it usually is kind of playful, but behind the playful, there's, there's maybe a little bit, you know, there's a little bit more to it. So, you know, Mason, you kind of got this coming in your life in the next couple of years, but I would not mess with your dad if I, if I, I wouldn't mess with your dad, so I'm not gonna, uh, you shouldn't either. But with Nathan and Jordan both, you know, they kind of, you know, they cut a point, they kind of puff their chest out, so I always said the same thing. Don't ever forget, I'm not your buddy, I'm your dad, <laughs> and I'll die for my house. <laughs> Do you want to die trying to take it over? Now, I don't mean I'm going to kill my kid by any stretch of imagination, but my point is, there's only one guy that, that's in charge here, and, and this is my home as God has directed me to lead you and care for you. And don't mistake me for just a, a pal. You're going to treat me with respect in my home because that's how God has designed it. And I think sometimes we're very disrespectful to God in the way we treat one another because we forget that, that our opinions, no matter how stridently we hold them, are subject to the lordship of Christ. And he tells us to treat one another with love and with kindness and respect. And we must remember that we are his. And then my last observation in this text is in the last couple of verses. And I simply call it reflection on reflection. So if I'm going to reflect on this, if I'm going to think about it, what am I going to think about? Paul says, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each, one, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So if I'm going to reflect on this, I'm not reflecting on how you apply it, but rather I'm going to use it as a mirror to look at my own reflection. Because I will stand before the Lord and you will stand before the Lord. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm a whole lot more worried about me standing before the Lord than, than you standing before the Lord. And this is not whether you are in heaven or, or not in heaven. This is not, this is not a judgment of salvation. This is the believers. These are the sons and daughters of the king coming to report on what? On how we treated one another. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't say we stand before the Lord and talk about our theology. 
He says, we stand before the Lord and we give an account on how we served his people. Did we nurture them? Did we love them? Even when we had sincere and honest disagreements? Did we, did we buy into a surefire protection plan for our community of believers by making sure that we did honest and daily self-evaluation in the shadow of the cross and examine how we treat one another based on the grace of God that has been given us? I think my life would be well spent if it was spent simply preparing to give God an account of how I treated you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, you inspired Paul to write these words because you care so deeply for your church. Lord Jesus, you came to die for your church, to establish your church, to give us new life. And you call us to treat one another with the same care and love that you have shown us. Father, I fall so far short of that. I can be so judgmental so quickly. I can have anger in my heart when I'm talking to somebody about something that in in the grand scheme of eternity matters not one whit. Father, help us to understand that which is essential. Help us to, to be deep and abiding in our faith in Christ and in your word. But Father, for those things that are opinions, for those things that are um, maybe important to me but not important to someone else, Lord, may my priority not be on getting my point across because that, that could destroy your church. It could do great harm to someone. But rather, Father, may our, our concern and our care and our, and our highest priority be your glory and your honor and how that's reflected in the way we treat each other. So, Lord Jesus, may we live out the creed that you have given us. And, and may Green Tree Community Church be a place uh, of safe haven for every believer, young and old, for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.